0: Section 2 of Figures of Several Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melvin Lee. Figures of Several Centuries by Arthur Simmons. Section 2. Charles Lamb. There is something a little accidental about all Lamb's finest work poetry he seriously tried to write and plays and stories but the supreme criticism of the specimens of english dramatic poets arose out of the casual habit of setting down an opinion of an extract just copied into one's notebook and the book itself because he said the book is such as i am glad there should be the beginnings of his miscellaneous prose are due to the ferreting of coleridge he ferrets me day and night Lamb complains to manning in eighteen hundred to do something he tends me amidst all his own worrying and heart oppressing occupations as a gardener tends his young tulip he has lugged me to the brink of engaging to a newspaper and has suggested to me for a first plan the forgery of a supposed manuscript of burton the anatomist of melancholy which was done in the consummate way we know and led in its turn to all the rest of the prose and barry cornwall tells us that he was almost teased into writing the Eliot essays he had begun indeed deliberately with a story as personal really as the poems but unlike them set too far from himself in subject and tangled with circumstances outside his knowledge he wrote Rosamond Grey before he was twenty-three, and in that lovely thing, as Shelley called it, we see most of the merits and defects of his early poetry. It is a story which is hardly a story at all, told by comment, evasion, and recurrence, by little images, recollections, and circumstances of past pleasures or distresses, with something vague and yet precise, like a dream partially remembered here and there is the creation of a mood a moment almost like Cooleridge's in the ancient mariner but these flicker and go out the style would be laughable in its simplicity if there were not in it some almost awing touch of innocence some hint of that divine goodness which in lamb needed the relief and savour of the latter frankishness to sharpen out the insipidity there is already a sense of what is tragic and endearing in the earthly existence though no skill as yet in presenting it and the moral of it is surely one of the morals or messages of elia god has built a brave world but methinks he has left his creatures to bustle in it how they may lamb had no sense of narrative or rather he cared in a story only for the moments when it seemed to double upon itself and turn into irony. All his attempts to write for the stage, where his dialogue might have been so telling, were foiled by his inability to bring three together on the stage at once, as he confessed in a letter to Mrs. Shelley, they are so shy with me that I can get no more than two, and there they stand till it is the time, without being the season to withdraw them narrative he could manage only when it was prepared for him by another as in the tales from shakespeare and the adventures of ulysses even in mrs leicester's school where he came nearest to success in a plain narrative the three stories as stories have less than the almost perfect art of the best of Mary lambs of father's wedding day which landor with wholly pardonable exaggeration called, with the sole exception of The Bride of Lammermoor, the most beautiful tale in prose, composition, in any language, ancient or modern. There is something of an incomparable kind of storytelling in most of the best essays of Elia, but it is a kind which he had to find out by accident and experiment for himself, and chiefly through letter-writing us dramatic geniuses he speaks of in a letter to manning against the taking of all words in a literal sense and it was this wry dramatic genius in him that was after all the quintessential part of himself truth he says in his letter is one and poor like the crews of elijah's widow imagination is the bold face that multiplies its oil and thou the old cracked pimkin that could not believe it could be put to such purposes it was to his correspondence, indeed to the excitement of their wakeful friendship that he owes more perhaps than the mere materials of his miracles to be holy himself lamb had to hide himself under some disguise a name elia taken literally as a pen-name or some more roundabout borrowing, as of an old fierce critic's, Joseph Riston's, to heighten and soften the energy of marginal annotations on a pendant scholar. In the letter in which he announces the first essays of Elia, he writes to Baron Field, You shall soon have a tissue of truth and fiction, impossible to be ex- extricated. The interleaving shall be so delicate, the partitions perfectly invisible the correspondents were already accustomed to this heavenly mingle few of the letters those works of nature and almost more wonderful than works of art are to be taken on oath those elaborate lies which ramify through them into patterns of sober-seeming truth are in anticipation and were of the nature of a preliminary practice for the innocent and avowed fiction of the essays what began in mischief ends in art. I am out of the world of readers, Lamb wrote to Coleridge, I hate all that do read, for they read nothing but reviews and new books. I gather myself up into the old things. I am jealous for the actors who pleased my youth, he says elsewhere, and again, for me I do not know whether a constitutional imbecility does not incline me too obstinately to cling to the remembrances of childhood. In an inverted ratio to the usual sentiment of mankind, nothing that I have been engaged in since seems of any value or importance compared to the colors which imagination gave to everything then. In Lamb, this love of old things, this willing reoccurrence to childhood, was the form in which imagination came to him. He is the grown-up child of letters, and he preserves all through his life that child's attitude of wonder before this good world which he knows which was created so lovely beyond his deservings he loves the old the accustomed the things that people have had about them since they could remember i am in love he says in the most profoundly serious of his essays with this green earth the face of town and country and the sweet security of streets. He was a man to whom mere living had zest enough to make up for everything that was contrary in the world. His life was tragic, but not unhappy. Happiness came to him out of the little things that meant nothing to others, or were not so much as seen by them. He had a genius for living, and his genius for writing was only a part of it, the part which he left to others to remember him by. Lamb's religion, says Pater, was the religion of men of letters, religion as understood by the soberer men of letters in the last century. And Hood says of him, as he was in spirit an old author, so was he in faith an ancient Christian. He himself tells Coolridge that he has a taste for religion rather than a strong religious habit and later in life writes to a friend much of my seriousness has gone off on this as on other subjects he grew shyer withdrew more into himself but to me it seems that a mood of religion was permanent with him such religion as i have he said has always acted on me more by way of sentiment than argumentative process and we find him preferring churches when they are empty as many really religious people have done. to Lamb religion was a part of human feeling, or a kindly shadow over it. He would have thrust his way into no mysteries, and it was not likely, or with anything but a strange, complexioned kind of gratitude, that he asked, sun and sky and breeze, and solitary walks, and summer holidays, and the greenness of fields, and the delicious juices of meats and fishes and society and the cheerful glass and candlelight, and fireside conversations and innocent vanities and jests and irony itself do these things go out with life it was what i call lamb's religion that helped him to enjoy life so humbly heartily and delicately and to give to others the sensation of all that is most enjoyable in the things about us it may be said of him as he says of the fox in the fable he was an adept in that species of moral alchemy which turns everything into gold and this moral alchemy of his was no reasoned and arguable optimism but a spirit of youth in everything an irrational causistical matter of lie persistence in the face of all logic experience and sober judgment an upsetting of truth grown tedious and custom gone stale and for a truth of the letter it substituted a new valiant truth of the spirit for dead things living ideas and gave birth to the most religious sentiment of which man is capable grateful joy among the innumerable objects and occasions of joy which lamb found laid out before him at the world's feasts books were certainly one of the most precious and after books came pictures what any man can write surely i may read he says to wordsworth of carlyle on job six folios i like books about books he confesses the test of the book-lover i love he says to lose myself in other men's minds when i am not walking i am reading i cannot sit and think books think for me he was the finest of all readers far more instant than coleridge not to be taken unawares by a blake i must look on him as one of the most extraordinary persons of the age he says of him on but a slight and partial acquaintance or by wordsworth when the lyrical ballads are confusing all judgments and he can pick out at sight she dwelt among the untrodden ways as the best piece in it and can define precisely the defect of much of the book in one of those incomparable letters of escape to manning it is full of original thought but it does not often make you laugh or cry it too artfully aims at simplicity of expression I choose these instances because the final test of a critic is in his reception of contemporary work, and Lamb must have found it much easier to be right before everyone else about Webster and Ford and Cyril Tourneur than to be the accurate critic that he was of Cooleridge at the very time when he was under the whiff and wind of Cooleridge's influence, and in writing of pictures though his knowledge is not so great, nor his instinct so wholly according to knowledge, he can write, as no one has ever written, in praise of Titan, so that his very finest sentence describes a picture of Titan, and can instantly detect and minutely expose the swollen contemporary delusions of a would-be Michelangelo, the portentous Martin. Then there were the theaters, which Lamb loved next to books, there has been no criticism of acting in English like lamb's so fundamental, so intimate and elucidating. His style becomes quintessential when he speaks of the stage as in that tiny masterpiece on the acting of Munden, which ends the book of Elia, with its great close, the Beethoven soft wandering close, after all the surges, he understands a leg of mutton in its quiddity he stands wondering amid the commonplace materials of life like primeval man with the sun and stars about him he is equally certain of shakespeare of congreve and of miss kelly when he defines the actors his pen seems to be plucked by the very wires that work the puppets and it is not merely because he was in love with miss kelly that he can write of her acting like this in other words that might apply with something of a truth to himself he has been saying of miss jordan that she seemed one whom care could not come near a privileged being sent to teach mankind what it most wants joyousness then he goes on this latter ladies is the joy of a freed spirit escaping from care as a bird that had been limed her smiles if i may use the expression seemed saved out of the fire, relics which a good and innocent heart had snatched up as a most portable. Her contents are visitors, not inmates. She can lay them by altogether, and when she does so, I am not so sure that she is not the greatest. Is not this, with all its precise goodness, the rarest poetry of prose, a poetry made up of no political epithets, no fanciful smiles, but of imagination, all compact poetry in substance. Then there was London. In Lamb, London found its one poet. The earth and sea and sky, when all is said, he admitted, is but as a house to live in, and separate from the pleasure of your company, he assured Wordsworth, I don't much care if I never see a mountain in my life. I have passed all my days in London, until i have formed as many and intense local attachments as any of our mountaineers can have done with dead nature the lighted shops of the strand and fleet street the innumerable trades tradesmen and customers coaches wagons playhouses all the bustle and wickedness round about covent garden the very women of the town the watchmen drunken scenes rattles life awake if you awake at all hours of the night, the impossibility of being dull in Fleet Street, the crowds the very dirt and mud, the sun shining upon houses and pavements, the print shops, the old bookstalls, Parsons cheapening books, coffee-houses, steams of soups from kitchens, the pantomime, London itself a pantomime and a masquerade. All these things work themselves into my mind and feed me, without a power of satiating me. The wonder of these sights impels me into night walks about her crowded streets, and I often shed tears in the motley strand from fullness of joy at so much life. There surely is the poem of London, and it is almost more than the rapture in its lover's catalogue of Walt Whitman's Poems of America. Almost to the end, he could say, as he does again to Wordsworth, not long before his death. London streets and faces cheer me inexpressibly, though of the latter not one known one were remaining. He traces the changes in streets, their distresses or disappearance, as he traces the dwindling of his friends. The very streets, he says, writes Mary, altering every day. London was to him the new, better Eden, a garden was the primitive prison till man, with Promethean felicity and boldness, sinned himself out of it. Thence followed Babylon, Nineveh, Venice, London, haberdashers, goldsmiths, taverns, playhouses, satires, epigrams, puns. These all came in on the town part, and thither side of innocence To love London, so was part of his human love and in his praise of streets he has done as much for the creation and perpetuating of joy as wordsworth by whose system mary lamb conjectured it was doubtful whether a liver in towns had a soul to be saved as done by his praise of flowers and hills and yet for all his disparagement of health and highlands as he confessed to scott lamb was as instant and unerring in his appreciation of natural things, once brought before them, and he was in his appreciation of things of art and the mind and man's making. He was a great walker, and sighs once before his release from the desk, I wish I were a caravan-driver or a penny-postman to earn my bread in air and sunshine. We have seen what he wrote to Wordsworth about his mountains, before he had seen them. This is what he writes of them to Manning, after he has seen them such an impression i never received from objects of sight before nor do i suppose i can ever again in fine i have satisfied myself that there is such a thing as that which tourists calls romantic which i very much suspected before and to Coleridge he writes i feel that i shall remember your mountains to the last day i live they haunt me perpetually all this Lamb saw and felt, because no beautiful thing could ever appeal to him in vain, but he wrote of it only in his letters, which were all of himself, because he put into his published writings only the best or the rarest of the accustomed and familiar part of himself, the part which he knew by heart. End of section two.